it feels really clear to be obsessed with the experience of one important group. Mm. Um, not even the developers. And I like it too, because I've been focused on developers for so long personally. Yeah, it's such a big mind shift. And I mean, it's part of the challenge that we face every day because we've got this uh, marketplace dynamic in our business. And so who is the customer is like the biggest question that you're faced with every yeah. single day. Yeah. And of course, you need to be hyper-focused on the home seeker experience, but it's the you know, developers, uh, marketing agencies, agents that are paying the bills. And it's so easy to focus on their product offering, their experience, their support. Yeah. And it just takes you away from the primary customer that you're trying to engage. Yeah. Um, are you I, focused on the home seeker? Yeah. Yeah. I say yes, but any marketplace business is always about that balance. Like, yeah. Uh, we launched a really interesting uh, connect program. It's an evolution of a previous product line, but uh, I think it's a significant evolution. It's almost like a, a, a total uh, fresh face. To, to how we connect unattached home seekers with uh, real estate agents that can, you know, as a buyer's agent. Unattached, meaning they don't have an agent yet? Yeah, unrepresented, I guess is a better term. But um, yeah, uh, buyers that want to view a home, uh, want to make an offer, uh, want to proceed in their real estate adventure, but are now at the point where they're going to need a good representative, a good agent. Yeah. Uh, and there are a heap of those. I'd say at least 50% of the people on our platform are those unrepresented buyers. Um, so it's a huge opportunity uh, for us to improve the experience if we match them with a great realtor partner. But um, yeah, we, we changed that program and we put in a whole uh, raft of what we think are very justifiable and feasible uh, rules, if you like, of engagement for the realtor partners that we have in the program uh, around responsiveness, uh, around uh, response time, around satisfaction rate of the engagement um, as stated by the home seeker. So we have all of these cool metrics that we want to track, but um, you do have to keep that in balance with how the partners respond because, uh, and I, the agents uh, respond because the experience is only as good as their willingness and enthusiasm to engage with the home seeker through the program that you're offering. And so we've had to relax some of those terms, but it's kind of cool because when you look at the data, you relax the rules, but the metrics actually remain unchanged. And so it's the perception that was challenging a lot of our partners the perception of control, the perception of uh, a lack of convenience, perhaps, because we the big issue is we mandated five-minute response times. So, I mean, you know what real estate is like. Yeah, You go from lead generation, if you want to call it that, although I don't believe anybody's a lead, um, but a home seeker reaches out and it goes into an email uh, thread. That email maybe gets dropped into a CRM and maybe that home seeker is downstream of some type of support process or not. But it's very difficult to tell what happens with the home seeker. So it's Once good. the lead leaves your platform, you mean? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, fire and forget is a good way to think about it because we're generating tens of thousands of these inquiries every month. Uh, it's much easier for us and everybody. Tens of thousands? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's much easier for us to kind of see that as outside of our experience if you know what I mean. yeah. And that's been the paradigm for marketplaces that I've led in other parts of the world. Uh, you frequently think of the what happens after the inquiry as somebody else's experience, not your experience. 
but for us the the paradigm is really shifting there it's like no the experience is actually one cohesive journey that that this home seeker is on they're going to start on our platform they're going to get like a lot of information and insights about the the real estate environment the neighborhoods the the actors within that environment they're ultimately going to see product or you know whether it be new home or resale that they want to engage on uh, and then they're going to engage and it, we need to now be with them beyond that engagement and so that's what this kind of connect program is all about is to innovate at that interface between the agent coming into the experience the beginning of that kind of last mile transaction process if you like uh, and the end if you like of that initial search and discovery process but not seeing it as two separate pieces anymore but seeing it as one arc that that a consumer is is on yeah um and and trying to bring a greater convenience and and effectiveness at that handover um but yeah going back to the point about uh, experience it's very easy in that moment when you're feeling a huge amount of pressure from agents you're like frustrated by the fact that they need to respond to an inquiry within a certain time frame yeah to say okay we'll go back to the way it's always been which is you know untracked unmeasured and and perhaps uh not optimized for the home seeker experience um but but so far i think we're making the right uh, kind of balancing act between the two the two sides of the market but going back to that initial um point that you raised about like hyper focus on one um customer and the type of experience that you want to create for that that group it's pretty tough in a in a marketplace environment where you are the meeting point between different uh, parties and so prioritizing one over another is always a challenge but we try and stay focused on the home seeker needs as much as possible because if we don't represent them who is going to mhm yeah i get that it's that's what i mean as a marketplace that's you know who you're attracting i can't believe you generate tens of thousands of leads a month you say it's a phenomenal yeah. number yeah so it's, received, it's, uh, you know, across different regions and different inventory types yeah. but yeah but it's still it's a huge number yeah um i mean that sounds like a web traffic number not like an actual lead gen number it's an amazing number yeah i mean i guess i get a little numb to this cuz you see this play out in different um uh different markets but the web traffic number if they're not in the millions or tens of millions then you get concerned yeah and the lead gen numbers if they're not in the tens of thousands same thing so we we do think at that scale but it really does make it difficult for us to come down to the depth experience and that's something that i'm really trying to push with with our team and and just generally like how do you build a great experience if you don't think of the actual individual personal journey of of people and you and you You, to do that you need to stop seeing it as numbers even though the numbers are quite compelling you have to start seeing it as like individuals what are their needs did they get their needs met it's a whole different way to think so why fire and forget the lead why not hold on to them like why don't you hold on to them in a CRM and invite your advertising agents to participate to call them and if they don't maybe move on to the next person or something yeah and i think that is the evolution of what we're doing now is um i guess the way we will talk about it is this idea of profile driven um so 
building a profile around the home seeker from all of the different touch points that they have with our platform. You know, because we're talking about multiple interactions over a long period of time. If you've ever searched for real estate, you know what it's like. It's like you almost discover your own needs through weeks and months of interacting with a platform like ours. And so we build that into a, a profile view of that home seeker, of that individual. Uh, and then that allows us to do interesting things around connecting them to the right professional at the right time. Because, I mean, that's the other thing is it's all about the moment. You know, I often think of an opportunity as two parts, uh, timing and, uh, you know, idea or challenge or transaction type that they're looking to to do. And you can't force either of those. Or a problem that needs to be solved. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, but the timing is such an important and separate aspect of it. Yeah, critical. I mean, in fact, it's probably more critical than anything. And that's why we've been a little bit dogmatic about response time and and how we create that connection because we know that that intent moment is such a short window uh, and if we can connect uh, an individual that stated they really would like to view a property or they'd like to get more information about a project if we can connect them with the solution immediately or as close to immediately as possible uh, the the experience goes through the roof like, it's like, I didn't expect that. That's surprising. That's awesome. Yeah. I've been on many websites and nothing ever happens. So that's cool. So we know the experience is going to be better, but we also know the downstream conversion is going to be way better. Uh, you know, the, the idea of calling somebody a day after they were in that mindset, they've moved on. And not because they've changed, just because their attention is on something else. Or they may have talked to somebody else. Yeah, they may have done that, but often it's just the attention. It's like, dude, I can't talk to you right now. I'm I'm yeah, taking my kids my to kids, soccer yeah. practice or it's something else is going on. Yeah. And so the moment of, of interaction is pretty key. Oh, totally. Let's have a look at what you brought here. The sweatshirt looks awesome. <laughs> Thank you, man. It's my shape too. It's kind of. Yeah, well, it fits long. me and I, I, I yeah, it might fit you. <laughs> looks awesome. Thank you. This umbrella, you won't get hit by traffic. Yeah, I mean, when you live in a rainy city like Vancouver, it's probably worth uh, worth having a, a good umbrella. But, oh, um, but yeah, both of those are part of like what we call our, our Genesis collection, if you like. And we're just trying to shift the, the mindset of the business from being a property website uh, that people go to to find a home to a, a brand. And a brand is a whole different thing. It's a whole different animal, right? It's, it's something that you can... Um, trust to some degree and and you can encounter in different ways not just through say a destination website but on multiple channels multiple platforms and even see in the street when it's raining yeah <laughs> it's good looking what's so what is that that you brought there glendronach yeah it's a favorite whiskey of mine i uh i thought we were going to have a conversation it's a beautiful rainy afternoon it's perfect I bring let's, a, let's bring have a, a little whiskey. Uh, taste perfect so how do you know so much about what you're talking about? I feel like you've done this before. <laughs> the marketplace been, yeah. thing. I feel like I've been doing it for a little bit too long. Um, Thanks. But uh, I started in, well, I mean, it depends how far back you want to go, but certainly. Let's go all the way back. Uh, certainly started um, in software. Uh, cheers. Cheers. Nick, can I offer you one? 
Never a man to say no. <laughs> you started in software back in back South in Africa? South Africa. Yeah. Um, so I don't think I've ever seen myself in real estate specifically, um, but I've always been around the real estate environment, and I think a lot of that was born out of uh, my father's experience. So he ran a, a big architectural firm in South Africa, and they did retail. Uh, shopping centers all over Africa and one of the more prolific firms. And so I was always kind of exposed to this world of real estate development, um, the professional team around real estate development, uh, some of the software powering that industry. Um, I mean, even when I was a kid, you kind of had that shift from drawing on drawing boards to AutoCAD and, uh, you know, 3D um, building renders and things. And so that was that was kind of foundational to my exposure to real estate, but I never, it's not like I wanted to specifically be in real estate. And coming out of varsity, I was really interested in web-based software. Uh, this, uh, this whole, this whole idea that you could shift from. What main, year was that? Sorry. What year was that? What era? Uh, this is like the mid two thousands. So, um, there were a lot of companies at that time moving in that direction. It wasn't completely, no, no one was talking about cloud-based yet because it was sort of pre-cloud, but everyone was talking about web-based. This idea that um, you could uh, log on from anywhere and get the same view of the data and the, and the, um, the features that you need to do the work that you were doing. Um, and so you had companies like Basecamp at 37 Signals, like really kind of rising and that was interesting to me. And looking at the uh, real estate space, which is, I guess, the most proximate industry that, that I had referenced at that time, you could see the deficiency uh, in how things were done. Um, and so we started, myself and a partner started a company that was working on the interface between conveyancing attorneys, so, you know, doing the title transfer on, on properties and uh, real estate agents and developers and trying to bring greater transparency to that process. Because what would happen is a little bit similar to how I described the fire and forget on a consumer inquiry, same thing would happen in, in real estate. The, the transaction or the sales offer would be written in a real estate company and then it would disappear from view until in, in South Africa's case, maybe 12 weeks later, the title would would transfer uh, in the deeds office. You know, the the all the work of the conveyancer would, you know, come to the transfer point. But for 12 weeks, there was no visibility. Like, what's the status of the file? What fees need to be paid? Um, when a commission's going to be realized? Uh, you know, all of that stuff. Um, so we set out to solve that issue just by kind of integrating different softwares and bringing it to life inside of a system. Uh, and that quickly morphed into solving workflow issues inside of the real estate customers' offices that we were engaged with. Um, so not particularly sexy, like back-end software stuff, workflow management software, but we tried to do it in a very experience-driven approach you realize that, you know, these people are sales agents. They're, you know, want to be out there. They want to be doing deals. They don't want to be processing files. Um, so we tried to bring some of that thinking into the software 
And having run that business for a couple of years, we then um, sold it to a real estate portal and marketplace uh, because at that time, and I guess today, uh, real estate marketplaces are very, very interested in the source of inventory, the source of listings. And particularly in markets outside of North America, you don't have this MLS, it's this kind of central database of shared inventory uh, you you either have access to that inventory or you don't. And so this proprietary access by acquiring the software that manages it is quite a good route in, um, or at least it's a strategically good idea. Uh, so they acquired the business. We I was going to stick around for like a year and integrate it into the real estate marketplace. And now I'm here, however many years later, having done the real estate marketplace thing in a bunch of different places around the world, I just kind of got uh, totally sucked into that world. Yeah. So after that first one that you sold, where, where did you go next? So I sold, well, we sold that business. We integrated in, into the, the, the property portal. And uh, I then started a journey within the property portal. And that was probably, I was there for maybe six years. And it started on the product and technology side. So it's like, this user experience problem and this uh, kind of uh, services-based architecture and moving to the cloud and all of these things were interesting problems to solve. And so we built the team to solve those problems for the portal and rebuilt the whole technology experience and sort of quickly moved from that into the operations and from the operations into leading the company and growing the company for four or five years. And so that was my first experience of running a real estate marketplace. And I really liked it because if you see inside one of those businesses, it's just such a great um, cross-section of all of the things that you want to be involved in. There's sales, there's marketing, there's branding, uh, there's technology development because you do all the software development in-house generally. Uh, there's commercial business development and and you've got teams of people doing all of these things. And so it's quite a, even though the companies are never that big, you know, in the case of the South African company, I think it was about 150 people when I left. But you have that great uh, exposure to a whole bunch of areas of business, which I always enjoy doing. Um, so, yeah, that was, the, that was the South African experience. And then, uh, believe it or not, Real estate portals have this type, like like micro industry network, if if you want to call it that. Every country in the world has two or three of these websites, uh, and they all look remarkably the same. They're all very localized. They all, you know, fit the 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 local and cultural um, idiosyncrasies of the market, but they're ostensibly the same under the surface that complement of teams, the things that they do, how they think about products and services, it's all very similar. Uh, and so through exposure to that network, I uh, ended up moving myself and the family to Spain and operating portals for a, for a large uh, aggregation company, a little bit like Indeed is to jobs. They are to the vertical of real estate. They own a lot of portals around the world and, and uh, uh, vertical search companies in real estate around the world. And so had exposure to Western Europe, Southeast Asia, Latin America, uh, through the lens of that organization, running these portals in different countries. Cool. And how did your family like Spain? 
How old yeah. are your kids then? Uh, young, young. Um, my son, Davis. I've only got one boy. He was um, virtually just born when we moved uh, over to Spain and we were there for about three years. Um, so he's lived on three continents already. Wow. Started life in Africa, Europe, and now here. But um, uh, yeah, it was, it was a great experience. Um, I, I don't know enough Spanish uh, to really feel like integrated into the society but they are such a warm uh open uh generous people that uh you feel uh like a like a native even if you know you aren't um so it was a great experience and i love going back i was back there a couple of weeks ago um yeah it's just there's an incredible warmth to that culture and i think once you've lived there no matter where you go in the world it's tough to find that yeah how did you find out about this opportunity with REW? Who owns REW, by the way? So REW is owned by Glacier Media Group. And they, they've got an interesting mix of holdings. They've got a big environmental risk business that works down in the U.S. Um, around uh, big proprietary data sets on, on uh, you know, environmental rules and regulations in the different provinces, ESG and their rules in different provinces. And so that's one part of the business. Um, the other part of the business is kind of mining and resource related media and, and data services, uh, agriculture. Uh, I had no idea how big the world of, of farming actually is, but uh, between different media products, different data offerings, different signals technology, you know, like soil and weather and everything else. Um, and huge outdoor uh, farm events that they run uh, a couple of times a year. It's a big part of the business. And then there's this this whole area of community media, um, which is a mix of like local news media. So uh, you, you would know platforms like Vancouver is Awesome, um, Castanet in the Okanagan. Uh, so, so there's kind of like hyper-local news focus. And then... Uh, media platforms like ours, which are more vertical, like REW and real estate. Do they own Castanet and Vancouver is awesome? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those are those are a couple of the brands, yeah. And then verticals like REW. Yes, yes. And so we're the we're the real estate vertical inside of that media group. But um It's a huge company. Yeah, it's pretty big. It's pretty big. It's a it's a publicly listed company, but it just really doesn't operate like a public company. I think um it's it operates very much like a, a holding company with a series of interesting and dynamic uh, companies inside of the group. They're all somewhat um, independent of one another. REW is probably the most independent. Like we, we feel very autonomous within the group. But I think, um, yeah, I think it's an interesting mix. And we, we haven't looked hard enough at what the opportunities are between the companies to, especially on the media side, to kind of bring together some of this um, – consumer data we have and the experience that we try and create. Uh, I think there's a lot we could do there. And how long have you been there now? Uh, just over three years. So I moved just before the pandemic. Perfect. Um, it was perfect timing. <laughs> yeah. like the world no was, was a different place back then. I'm uh, kidding. Yeah, it, felt, it felt easy to move. The opportunity was intriguing to me because North America obviously has a very different real estate ecosystem to the rest of the world. The rest of the world, you have one agent in every transaction. 
Uh, here in North America, you've obviously got two agents in the transaction, and so it's it's a very different animal. Uh, the role of the MLS, the role of the buy side, the role of the listing side, um, and then obviously the the ecosystem around uh, primary category or new homes is very different as well. So it was intriguing as a kind of thought exercise, uh, and it was just a good fit for the family and the stage that we were going into to explore Vancouver. And it's a beautiful place to live. How old's your boy now? He's six. Nice. Yeah. It's a fun age. Yeah, it's a fun age. He started uh, grade one. Uh, he's having a great time. Uh, you know, a mix of, of uh, constructive things like learning to read and, and, and uh, how I found him at pickup a couple of days ago in a puddle uh, doing mud angels with his mates <laughs> shouting at him. So yeah, it's a good age. Yeah. So fun. So you run rew.ca. It's just a Canadian focus, I guess, with the .ca. It doesn't uh, go into America. Correct. Correct. We're a, we're a Canadian real estate platform. Uh, it grew out of the old Real Estate Weekly because that was a, a longstanding publication as part of the Glacier Media Group because Glacier Media has kind of evolved out of legacy media, a lot of newspapers. Uh, so believe it or not, it's a 40-year-old brand. Um but uh, we shifted completely digital, so so complete independent, almost startup approach to building a, a real estate platform back in 2012. So, you know, since then it's been growing and establishing itself, and it's certainly uh, at its strongest out here in the west of Canada, BC being the primary market, Alberta being a fascinating kind of growth market for us as we see this interprovincial uh, expansion and and kind of trade that's that's happening, particularly in real estate. Um, What's happening is you mean just people? a lot of lot of BC buyers uh, buying in the uh, you know BC interior and in Alberta. Uh, I mean, if you look at the stats for Calgary and Edmonton, they are doing now what uh, Vancouver and Toronto were doing in early twenty twenty one. It's like everything is everything is um, looking good there, and I think it's just purely an affordability uh, issue. So, like at the point that you feel so much pressure on the uh, from the interest rate and from kind of mortgage affordability, the only short term solution is to find cheaper product, and that's happening uh, in Calgary and Edmonton now. So, so as an example, the metrics that we watch are. Um, overall like total inventory because total inventory is like a a proxy for days on market you can look at days on market as well but um the the more you see this inventory starting to balloon and increase the more you know something is going on on the demand side uh properties are sitting they're not transacting with the level of frequency uh that you would hope for and at the moment the differences are stark between a Vancouver market and a Calgary market. It's like uh, days on market are three times higher here. Um, and but, you're looking at all yeah. product types, right? Yeah, that's Even that's a single family types. to brand new condos, everything. That's it. Yeah, yeah. It's a little bit more difficult to get that information with that level of fidelity on the, the pre sales, yeah, on the pre sale yeah. stuff. Um, but but yes, across all all inventory types that we can see in on the resale side. That's amazing. I actually had no idea. I had no idea that we were three times Calgary. Yeah, it doesn't feel like that because you look at some of the board stats and it's like, I don't know, 
this September looks better than last September, but I think people forget how bad last September was. Um, and so it's like, oh, it's up year on year. It must be okay. But um, it's still near 20-year lows in terms of transaction volumes uh, in this market. And uh, there's a lot of stock that's just sitting on the market or being uh, delisted, uh, which is another thing that we're seeing a lot of. You don't see a lot of um, that happening in Calgary. Do you look at the commercial market or is it just resi? We're pure resi. Uh, in fact, my experience all over the world is that resi and commercial uh, don't make great bedfellows. Um, although I sat in a in a conference in, in Madrid a couple of weeks ago and listened to Andy Florence from CoStar talk about their commercial roots and how it's kind of giving them a perspective on resi that maybe the resi guys haven't had before. Uh, but I still don't know if I completely buy it. Um, it's very, very different from a scale point of view, uh, serving the commercial market to serving the the consumer market. Um, you know, if you if you want to know what offices are available in a in a particular market, the the group, the cohort of potential buyers is much smaller. The brokers are probably better positioned than platforms to create a good experience around that. Um, it's not, I don't see it as similar to the Resi. Mm -hmm. Agreed. Um, so yeah, I get that looking at stats year over year in the Resi market is, can be a little bit misleading if you forget how bad last September was. Hmm. It seems very interesting to look at markets. You've got markets all the way across Canada. So how does, how does Vancouver compare to like Toronto? Yeah, Toronto is probably the worst, um, right now. Uh, that's not to say Vancouver is doing amazingly. Yeah. Um, it's less terrible. It's just less terrible. Exactly. Uh, no, the Toronto market's pretty challenged right now, especially in uh, detached and townhomes. Like, well, you know, like um, low-rise uh, multifamily, uh, everything outside of the condo market, put it that way. Uh, the condo market is, I guess, better, but it's still way off historic average. Uh, in terms of transaction volume. And as a marketplace, like I really think transaction volume matters. Mm -hmm. Everyone talks price, you know, is the price going up? Is the price stalled? Is the price going down? Um, but transaction volume is evidence of like a healthy real estate environment. And when it stagnates, like you're seeing now, that's, that's a real problem. I mean, obviously it has some downward pressure on prices, but um, I don't think that's the real story. I think the real story is in volume. Let's talk for a minute about the journey of like the home seeker, which I think is a great term. Uh, they're not a home buyer yet. They're just mm. interested in learning. So typically a home seeker will call their agent if they have a relationship and say, this is, these are what my needs are. You know, what are your thoughts on mm. my options? You know, that kind of thing. Um, but more and more people are, are more self-service oriented, right? And that's where you guys come in? Well, it's it's fascinating hearing you um, describe the journey starting that way. I think for a lot of people that have done it before, that's how the journey might start. Um, but but funny enough, even for people that have a, an, a trusted agent as an advisor, they still want to explore what the market opportunities are before they talk to their realtor, and that's where the platform comes in. Uh, it's it's about exploration. It's about discovering the opportunities that exist within the market, but it's also about discovering your own needs to a greater level of fidelity before you talk to someone 
you don't want to waste their time, you know, like no matter how friendly you are with your realtor, there's still that element of a professional relationship. Like I'm going to call you and it's going to be for a reason. Um, so the platform plays that job, like, like central role in discovery and exploration. Uh, but then for most of the home seekers, uh, I would suggest that they don't really have that bonded relationship with a professional realtor yet. And that's what we see a lot on the platform. Um, people feel like they should answer the question, do you have a realtor with an affirmative? They're like, oh, I, I, I guess I do. <laughs> but not a lot of people, uh, when pressed, can give you the name of their realtor. Uh, everyone knows uh, lots of realtors. They had to call someone they could, but they haven't. They haven't, and uh, they don't know exactly how it works either. I think it's fascinating that the uh, the real estate industry ecosystem here feels like it deliberately obfuscates reality from home seekers. So as an example, you go on these real estate platforms and it's all about the listing agent. You know, this is my listing. Um, uh, here's all the information on the listing. And then there's a big fat message me button uh, or call me or set up a viewing. But if you've ever actually done that, the experience usually goes like this. Hey, how are you doing? Uh, cool. I'm glad you're interested in the listing. Uh, have your realtor call me. Bye. <laughs> it's like, really? So, so, so that, and, and it makes sense because that's how the industry works. It's like, um, the MLS is the way that we share information between the listing agent and the buyer's agent. And the buyer's agent is meant to do the hard work of, of the concierge representative to the home seeker. But of course, if you're a poor home seeker that doesn't have one of these concierge, they, they're the access point for you to the whole transaction. And you don't know that. There's no website that deliberately says, by the way, you're going to need a buyer's agent. They better be good. Here's a great one. And, and increasingly, we are doing that because that's the reality of the transaction journey that people will need to go through. But for whatever reason, uh, even the actions of um, really well-meaning uh, listing agents and the boards that they belong to and the overall um, real estate association that governs everything, everything is kind of pretends that that's not the way it works. It's like, of course, you should go to the listing agent. But the listing agent is representing the seller, and, and they've been very clear about that. Uh, so how does the buyer get the kind of experience that they need uh, in the journey? They need to work with a great buyer's agent. And so it's funny, but that, that um, the way you described it at the outset, which is, you know, if I'm in the market, I'm going to call my realtor, and we're going to have a chat, and they're going to present me with some options, and we're going to do this thing, that presumes that you have a great realtor um, and and increasingly we see people don't have that relationship fully formed yet. And so we get that opportunity to connect them with someone who who is the right fit for them, for that particular neighborhood, for that particular inventory type that has like a great customer experience approach. Um, but yeah, the, the, the combination of find the right partner for your real estate journey and explore, discover the real estate inventory, content, insights, immerse yourself in the category. Uh, we play those two roles. When home seekers come to your platform, 
where do they most often go first? Like what's the most engaging part of your platform where they seem to be attracted to at the outset? It's always listings. Yeah. It's like, just show me the product. It's a really fascinating behavior because you'd think that it's kind of neighborhood based. Um, let me learn more about Yeah, the I guess granular so fast, right? It's not high level. Like what city do I want to live in? What yeah. neighborhood within what city? Yeah, don't show me the trees. I just want to see the leaves. It's yeah. exactly like that. They go straight to the uh, to the inventory itself. And then they build a picture from the inventory out. And so you start with, oh, that's an interesting listing. Oh, I really like the, the kitchen. Oh, that's an interesting price. That's interesting. And you move layer by layer out. Yeah, so here's something I could afford that actually piques my interest. It looks kind of cool. I think it's a fit. Now, could I live in that neighborhood within that city? What's around there that might be good? That's interesting. Totally. And, and it's really fascinating, but that behavior persists all the way through the exploration process. So it doesn't just start there, but it tends to be the... It tends to be the default uh, behavior of most consumers. Um, you know, the, the the killer feature, if you like, of any real estate marketplace are these uh, email alerts to tell you what's new in a market. And that's what brings people back. It's like, oh, that's an interesting house in a neighborhood that I'm already kind of connected to. Then go and check it out. And then from there, that spawns a 15-minute session of looking at a whole bunch of other places and favoriting some and sending some to partners and then maybe booking a tour on one. But it came through seeing product which is is kind of an interesting uh behavior i guess we do it with other transactions as well do we like what well i think automotive is a category like that you don't start with uh oh i need a sedan i want it to have this kind of power plant (laughs) you're right kind of work your way down you start with gee that's a sexy looking car that car oh i like that deal and then you're like oh but but maybe i should compare it to the other three cars that are similar and you work your way out. And can then can I afford it? Yeah, and then you buy a minivan. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's funny. It's interesting. That's so interesting. And I, I totally believe it because I've I've done it, you know, I'm real estate obsessed. So I've been on your site, been on many sites looking, and that's the way it goes. Peaked by interest peaked by a listing and then comparing and then sort of backing out. Mm. And then at some point drilling back down. So I wonder when that happens. Well, that's usually, uh, and that's why, I, like, I always think about our platform as, um, you know, you hear the social media companies, uh, at least historically, would talk about the importance of a social graph and understanding uh, the consumer, their relationship with friends, their location, their demographic, all that stuff as, as vital consumer information. I see ours more as an intent graph. So you can see somebody's intent switch from, mild interest in the category uh, to your frequent use and like now we're really in a search and find mode to actual transaction moment comparison um, and 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 real inquiry action and all of that is like this intent profile of a particular individual uh, and that's that's the power of of Vertical marketplaces, I think, is is they capture that intent better than other platforms. You can see great real estate content on a lot of different platforms. You know, um, uh, Instagram is is a classic, uh, particularly for the for the uh, new construction vertical. So you can see new project advertising. You can kind of interact with it, um, but at the point of real intent, there's going to be this comparative shopping. Uh, between that particular project, other projects, uh, resale opportunities, all sorts of things happening, all in kind of this uh, 
type window. And that's when you start to see like the intent being very, very important. Um, but yeah, that's, that's, I think the utility of, uh, of a platform like ours is that we capture that intent. I guess it's as concentrated as it gets on any other platform option. It's not the only platform, but it's certainly one of them. No doubt. It's, so do your users register? Uh, is that how you can track their activities? Yeah, so there's obviously a great degree of uh, anonymous interaction, um, and you can draw inferences from that. Uh, but at the point that somebody logs in, creates an account, and there are all sorts of reasons why they would want to do that, uh, then we can append better uh, data to that consumer record. But yeah, it is a pretty simple game. It's not complicated. And so what in your world is is the transaction? When do they go from contemplation and research to what you call transaction mode? Yeah, it. it uh, I think you, you, you mentioned this. Um, well, I often think of it as this path of self-discovery because uh, real estate is this really fascinating vertical, right? Uh, the product is all very different to itself. Uh, it's not a... Uh, every other category of product is a is a product, and you can have many more of them. Uh, so if you like a Tesla Model 3, you can buy one. Um, but in real estate, there's this one-to-one match, which is a little bit more like uh, employment or dating. Uh, and so you now are taking a consumer through a journey of self-discovery more than anything else. It's discovery of the inventory that they like or that would suit their needs, but it's also Id- identifying what their needs actually are. Um, and this is a great benefit uh, that people don't often think about. It's like if you actually go and talk to your realtor and that was the only interface that you had, your realtor would get, uh, their business would look very, very different. They would be working with you for months trying to figure out what the hell you actually want. You know, like, uh, but I showed you three of those and you didn't like any of those. So what do you actually want? Um, But the answer isn't that the consumer is hiding that from you. It's that the consumer doesn't yet know. And so we just like speed up that process of self-discovery. Like you can check a whole bunch of different things. You can, you can do some number crunching. You can go and drive around the neighborhood. You can, you know, get a sense. And then at the point that you are, you have a, better picture of what it is that would suit your needs, then you're entering that transaction zone. And then it's about that time and opportunity. Like, is there a, is there an, a property that pops up on the market that meets those now established needs? And can you afford it? Uh, are you able to buy it? Or is somebody outbid you? You know, the actual transaction process itself. But, um, you can actually see that quite obviously in the data. Uh, yeah, I mentioned the inquiries that we generate. People don't come onto the website in the very first session, send an inquiry to a professional. It'll be, you know, days, if not weeks before they send their first inquiry. And then usually what happens is that's like a bit of a test. It's like, okay, I went and saw a couple of properties. Uh, you know, I kind of have a better sense of what they actually are like. And then maybe a month or two later, I start to enter a far more focused um, transaction moment. But um, but it's different for everyone, right? 
So of course it's also different for like investors have a very different process to people who want to move for a lifestyle reason. Um, and they're driven by different timetables. Uh, I don't know if that answered your question. Well, can you see that <laughs> in the, I'm interested in that. Can you see that in the, the path of people on your website, whether they're an investor or an end user call it looking for a place to live? Yeah. Sometimes we're even more, um, simplistic than that. We'll ask them, you know, at the point that they're making an inquiry, it gives us a great opportunity to like capture a whole bunch of information about mm -hmm. them. And so it's like, is this the first time doing it? Do you have a great, do you have a realtor? Um, uh, are you an investor buyer? Are you moving uh, as a, as a resident? So there there's data collection that is very simple to do just like at point of inquiry. And then there's data that you can infer and, um, yeah, based on different inventory types, there's obviously a lot, uh, there's a lot more interest in pre-construction from an investor buyer than there is from a resident buyer. Uh, somebody that's looking to move for lifestyle reasons is usually in the market now. Uh, somebody looking for investment reasons is also in the market, but happy to buy something that's two years out, three years out, and still needs to be built. In fact, probably prefers that to something that's on the market now, unless there's some like real market-based reason why they want to acquire an investment now. Yeah. And this market, it's tough and other markets probably easier, but you know, what you're talking about is probably like a cap rate investor that's looking to buy something built, ready to rent out, ready to own now because the returns are good. But mm. in our market, that's just not reality. People buy here for appreciation mostly. I got to say that's fascinating. Um, that's one of the biggest differences I've seen between here and anywhere else in the world that I've, that I've operated is the complete, uh, disregard of yield for investors. Um, and, and I don't really understand that. I mean, I understand that there's this appreciation based capital based approach to buying real estate in, in BC in particular. But uh, it still sort of flies in the face of everything I've ever known before. Um, the the disregard of the actual rental yield on the investment property that you buy um, is pretty fascinating. Uh, I don't know if you know how alone uh, these markets are in, in that regard. Almost everywhere else in the world, apart from some like real luxury foreign buyer markets. Toronto. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Toronto, Hong Kong. Um, Dubai, maybe those are markets where it's, it's, it's all capital and appreciation based, uh, almost everywhere else. It's like people do actually care what the rental yield of the investment's going to look like. Will it cover the mortgage and the, and the levies and everything else? Uh, here, yeah, not so much, which is really interesting. I mean, I guess that, that is part of the speculative nature of real estate, uh, in, in Canada. I'm sure every investor would like to have a profitable yield if they could. Um, but in this market, the reality is if you can just cover your expenses, you're probably happy. And, uh, you know, especially in the residential side and uh, hoping for appreciation. Oh, yeah. I mean, zero yield would be a great outcome, I think. I, but, but I guess what I mean is people don't even really know what that is. Whereas that's one of the more searched for things uh, in other markets. You know, people are, you know, help me understand the, the kind of carrying costs of this uh, property, the, the capital appreciation, but most notably like the cash flow implications of it. Um, whereas here it feels, it feels a little disconnected from that. Um, 
which I, I guess um, uh, suits the stage that the market's in with this, you know, high demand, low supply, but ultimately is not a great way to think about real estate investing. Speculating? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's great when it works, right? Totally. And I think the historic track record is that it works. And so people don't really think about the rest. Yeah. Um, they, they don't have to. But um, it's worked in pre sale for a long time. Yeah. I'd argue that every buyer of pre sale is investment minded, whether they plan to live there or sell it or rent it out. They're investment minded. They're buying that. They're usually paying a premium um, over buying something down the street, maybe a couple of years old, because they believe it's going to go up. Yeah, and because it's easy. They just pay a deposit and wait for the construction period. I think that I think that's a huge deal. I mean, particularly in the last year or so, this idea of deferring the actual implication and hoping for price appreciation in that deferral period, uh, that that's like a huge driver of of that type of investment now, like condo investment now. Um, but yeah, I, I'm fascinated by the the market. Uh, I've had to learn a lot about the ecosystem of real estate here, uh, the gatekeepers in that ecosystem, uh, and and just the cultural uh, connection that a lot of Canadians have with the the asset class. It really it really is fascinating because it is quite different to how it's how it operates in different parts of the world. Um, it uh, it's almost seen as like the primary wealth creation tool uh, for a lot of people, um, and and that's very different to other parts of of the world. And I think it's, it's I think it contributes to this real affordability challenge that people have here, because people are almost wired to desire higher and higher prices, ever higher prices. Like that's that's seen as like a really uh, positive thing. From a from an investment and appreciation and and wealth creation thing, but obviously that skews the role of housing to some degree. You see it now as a as a financial asset driving a return, almost like stocks, you know, and instead of seeing it as a as a social asset, you know, being integral to the development of thriving communities and the people that live in those communities and a basic need and and housing in any developed economy is always both of those things but i think canada has a far higher uh, priority on the financial uh, component of the of the housing asset as opposed to the social component which i find completely mind-blowing considering that canada is otherwise very socially conscious um, you know the uh, the like the healthcare system. Uh, if you think about that, healthcare and housing, and the opposite ends of the spectrum that they're on in Canada, it is as, at least from my perspective, kind of coming into the country uh, from the outside. It's just a fascinating paradox. So I guess like so different the approach. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, we, you know, we we can never tolerate this concept of like private healthcare and how it might encroach on this this broadly held belief that everyone has a right to adequate and, and great healthcare. And then on the other side, housing is like completely fair Wild game. West. Yeah, uh, make you, you know if if uh, is a completely private market uh, system. 
uh, no real uh, public involvement other than regulating it, uh, the bureaucracies that regulate it and the cost that they add to the whole process, which I, I don't think is particularly good. But um, but yeah, I just find that like quite quite paradoxical. I don't it know is. what you think about that. No, I, I can't even disagree with what you said. You, it was just so well put. You know, your international perspective is interesting. I've, I lose perspective from being so deeply involved here for so long. Um, but I never thought about the comparison between how, how we as a country treat the real estate market versus the healthcare market, for lack of a better term. Yeah, it's fascinating. I agree. It's totally different. I personally love the opportunity Canadians have to build wealth in real estate. Mm. And I want Canadians to do that. I think it's uh, the easiest, best and safest way to achieve financial freedom. Mm. And the idea of, um, of socialist housing kind of scares me. You know, the idea that government builds it. I just, I grew up, you know, in an era um, with all of the sort of anti sort of communism movies and, you know, communism being the bad guy and all that kind of stuff. And it's a scary thought for me to think of what the socialist housing solution looks like. Yeah. Um, no, I, and I completely agree with that. I, I don't, I'm not advocating for a, a greater role from government in in the actual provision of housing uh, as as it is in healthcare in fact i think the healthcare debate in my mind could be more balanced like there definitely is or their models i mean spain was an amazing example of a healthcare system um they have a very good nhs style uh system where if anything you know goes wrong you have full um public support from great hospitals and great doctors. But they also have a small and I guess growing uh, private layer for people that, I mean, to be frank, want to skip the queue or or deal with things in in their time frame and are willing to pay for it. And that the the system actually coexists pretty well. Uh, uh, and I've I, I've encountered both of those systems. Uh, obviously, South Africa, my experience in healthcare is like completely different. It's very private. It's very difficult to get access to public healthcare, even if you need it. Um, so that's a dysfunctional system. But if you think about the housing um, conversation, I think it's possible to be more balanced in the way that it works. And I totally agree with you. I think home ownership is a foundational pillar to a developed economy. The idea of uh, free title and transfer of, of land and it's a it's a compelling and critical piece of of a democracy because it democratizes capital to some degree, which is like really, really important. But it also just means that um, you as an individual have a way to build wealth that you otherwise wouldn't be able to do. Not everyone can run a business or own a business or start a business. Um, this is a way to to build wealth. So I totally agree with that. But I do think um, the fact that it's completely hands off in terms of a discussion about the social utility of housing, uh, where should we be building housing? What should the price of that housing be? Not what does it have to be to make the numbers work, but what should it be if you wanted to reconcile it with income, as an example? Like to, to have such a disparity between uh, income and housing, particularly for the younger generations, is a societal problem. Like it's going to have repercussions for the fabric of how 
the society operates. Um, maybe small ones, like, you know, people prefer to be digital nomads than create households, or big ones to the degree that um, that there's some type of correction in the housing market or, um, yeah, so, so I don't know. I, I just think that there could be more balance and I'm certainly not advocating for social housing, but it's funny how quickly the conversation goes there. It's like, uh, you know, either it's capitalist or it's socialist. It's not really. It's, it's like, let's just have a conversation about what adequate and affordable housing looks like, the different models that exist to perpetuate it, and how can we bring more of that to the market? Because, uh, again, going back to the marketplace, uh, for me, and I might be biased, but volume in the market is a sign of a healthy market. Uh, and Canada's growing like crazy. Uh, you know, I'm one of the people that's come in, uh, myself and my family, and I see the opportunity of this place. It's super exciting, but it needs to be thought of from that point of view of opportunity, not from that point of view of uh, problems and protectionism. Um, what is the opportunity you see as a relatively new immigrant three years, three years now? What attracted you to Canada? Yeah, I mean, all the usual tropes, if you like. It's it's this, uh, the one thing I think that really attracted me coming from Africa is this feels like a frontier still. And if you've got any entrepreneurial spirit and, and fire to kind of do new things, Canada definitely has that appeal, at least from far away. It feels like a frontier uh, that still has some exploration and discovery and growth to go. It's a young country. I mean, particularly out here in the West, it's remarkable how young it is. The problem is it acts a little too old, at least in my mind. It pretends to be more established, more developed than it perhaps is. I'd love it to see, I'd love to see it drawing more comparison with like fast growing nations in Asia, as an example. Like how is Korea doing things? How is um, even Thailand doing things? How is Malaysia doing things? And I had a lot of exposure through a previous uh, uh, opportunity to those markets. And there's just this wide eyed sense of wonder at what the future could be. Whereas you come to Canada and there just does feel like there's a little bit more of a steady on uh, limitation to what the vision of a modern uh, economy and a, and, a, and a growing dynamic country could look like, considering that it is a destination for some of the world's most talented people. I mean, that's that on its own is super exciting. Uh, you add to that you know, the resources and the land and the space uh, the access to the world's biggest and most uh, effective economy uh, ever. Uh, there's there's so much going for the place. Um, I don't know how you feel because it's very easy for me from kind of a fresh perspective having these ideas, but you've obviously grown up, you've been part of the whole, um, the whole scene for much, much longer than I have. So I don't want to presume like I know it's what's going on, but it definitely feels like there's this, a uh, bit of an arm wrestle going on at the moment and it's and it's behind the scenes but it's like a compelling dynamic future of what Canada could be and a more parochial protectionism of what it is and the status quo and you see that kind of play out even in things like 
the levels of bureaucracy and legislation and things that hold you back. Mm. Anyway, that was a bit of a rant, but you well, know what I mean? I, mean, <laughs> I hear you. And it's, a, I think it's just a classic struggle between um, people looking forward and those looking backward. People that are to see opportunity embrace change and those that are just against change. And it's just the oldest argument in the world. And you can see it on every level of government and uh, and all through our society, for sure. I'd love to get your opinion on what's happening with the Bank of Canada right now. Because obviously it's a big it's a big issue for the real estate economy in general is where interest rates are, particularly the combination of where interest rates are and prices are. It holds back new construction. It holds back uh, liquidity and and uh, transaction flow in the resale market. Um, what do you think? Because it almost feels like the sacred cow. But what do you think of this two percent inflation target? I don't think it's realistic. Yeah, and I'm I'm not even uh, convinced that it's right or the right number. I don't even know where that number comes from. Actually, where did it come from? It totally. I, I love to hear you say that because often when I talk to people, it's just an established norm that, yeah, they're doing the right thing because they've got to try and squash this inflation down to 2%. It's like, yeah, but I've lived in countries all over the world and inflation rates are different all over the world. You know, in some emerging economies, the whole idea is growth development. Uh, and, and so the inflation rate is tolerated at a higher level to generate that kind of productivity and and development. And then in other places, uh, I mean, Spain, when I lived there, was was basically zero inflation, stagnation or stagflation, whatever they call it. And that's not particularly good. But the society operated and, you know, things were, it was a great place to live and operate and run a business. Uh, and then you come here and it does feel like we're, we're chasing an arbitrary target despite data-driven evidence all around us that we should maybe change that target or change that thinking. Um, what happens in a zero inflation environment? What's the, what's the downside of that, like Spain? Well, the, the problem with zero, like if it just sits at zero for too long, it, it, there's, there's, this, um, there's zero reason to save or invest uh, it has an impact on things like housing appreciation, you know, that wealth creation that you That's see in property, all of that kind of goes away. And then you kind of, the society starts to live, I wouldn't say hand to mouth, but like day to day, paycheck to paycheck, because there's no real incentive to kind Spend of, it all. yeah, grow for the next or save for the next day or grow anything material. Um, so it's good for the economy. The economy gets fired up by all the spending. Yeah, but again, I think it really depends on the social context because for for Spain, I think that's a really positive aspect of their culture is that, uh, I mean, you cook far less when you live there because restaurants are ubiquitous and everybody's got a menu of the day and they're all well-priced and affordable. And so you eat out with friends, with people. You couldn't, you couldn't bear that cost here. You couldn't eat every meal out in Vancouver. It would... Uh, it's financially crippling, yeah. but that's the social context as well. It's like here it's more of an occasion, there it's more of a of a norm. Um, so it works in that context to have this like very fluid um, uh, economy where where money is sort of flowing through people's hands uh, into different industries and back again uh, all at the same time. And I guess Europe's um, 
the 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 stability of of interest rates even at that low level means that it's it's very easy for that to happen um but here i think the big challenge that we have here is just what the cost of capital is going to mean for the progress and development agenda that i was talking about like how do you build a dynamic modern amazing uh, nation to house 50 million 60 million people if you can't afford to borrow on infrastructure projects on housing on hospitals on you know like there needs to be a flow of capital and a reason for capital to flow i mean at the moment it feels if i had a heap of capital it would feel far safer just just realizing the returns you can get on on sitting on it right now yeah, and a GIC. and that's the danger that's the danger of like high interest rates for the purpose of low inflation uh, it's great if you have a lot of capital. It's not great if you're the millennial generation that's looking for opportunity, growth, and expansion uh, in all areas of their life, uh, including housing. Um, and and that, I think, is the story that's not being told mm-hmm. enough is this is the first and perhaps most pernicious generational divide in wealth that we've seen in the modern world. Uh, people that have made money obviously incentivized to bring inflation down as much as possible to secure the the future value of that money and people that haven't made money uh, obviously want the economy with opportunities in in jobs and affordable housing or asset classes that they can access, whether that's affordable stocks or affordable uh, properties. And that is a huge divide right now. And yeah. I don't think you have a lot of millennials on the Bank of, Cabin- uh, Bank of Canada board. No. So it's also an unrepresented uh, problem, I think. It is. It does not sound like it's being well run, honestly. Like if you make the cost of money so high that developers can't, uh, build the supply. Like I know of one project, uh, that the cost of the cost of money, just that one light item went up $25 million. That's 25 million that needs to be added to the price of every home in order for the project to go ahead. That's very direct effect on uh, supply and price, you know, these two big problems. So as, as supply is constrained and the cost of buying what's left goes up for buyers, you know, we're not solving the housing affordability problem. You know, it's the opposite. It's the opposite. But the problem is we're all complicit in it. because, And that's what I meant about the kind of cultural framework that we operate in within Canada. But how are we complicit? Well, it's it's like nobody wants to see the price of housing come down. Uh, neither do I, by the way. Um, so it's not that I want to see you're a homeowner. It. Yeah, totally. As a homeowner, you want to see it appreciate. And, uh, and whether you're honest about it or not... Um, the faster, the better, right? Um, the The only challenge with that picture is you have to leave to realize the return. And I don't think people really understand that. It's like at some point you've got to cash in your chips. You've got to move to Mexico or something to really realize that abundance because you've just ridden the market. And if you move, you move sideways within that market. And so that's what I mean by complicit. It's like we all desire this higher price outcome for real estate, and we all desire it regardless of the cost, uh, even if that means lower supply, 
um, not enough adequate housing for for essential tradespeople and service people in our in in our various industries and and the communities. Um, and I think that's that's just a worrying trend, uh, you know. It, and that's and that's where I come back to that paradox of Canada, you know, very socially aware, socially conscious people, uh, you know, really a level of empathy and interest in, in others more than I've seen in a lot of places in the world. And yet when it comes to housing, it's like a tolerance for, uh, you know, high prices and the implications of those high prices that you seldom see, um, so it's it's yeah that dynamic is interesting but yeah I'm not I'm not trying to label everyone as complicit in a housing crisis I'm just saying I think we have incentives that drive behaviors that are not ideal for the growth of the society that we all want to be part of in 20 years and so how do we shift some of those incentives would be a good question maybe we're complicit in that we just don't care enough it's just that, you know, like there's, there's been, uh, politicians and leaders over the years talking about how to address the issue. There's been, uh, one of the, one of the store, one of the storylines that I like the most is, is leaning in on the, the speculators and, you know, cause they don't add value, mm. you know, when a, when a person ties up a, a piece of land and then doesn't build on it and then flips it to another developer uh, and makes millions of dollars for themselves. They just take that off the table for themselves. They've added no value to the land. And now that site lands, you know, like I've seen it through key where it lands in key's lap, so to speak. And now the land cost is higher again. It needs to be paid for by the buyers. It's, That's a problem that yeah. you've got to now solve. Yeah. Like how do we, how do we create consumer adoption at this higher price point? And, and you, even you got to figure that out. Yeah. And then people speculating on condos too, but there isn't, uh, there hasn't, there's been some headway made on that, but there, it just hasn't been enough because I don't think people care enough. But it seems like an easy part, uh, some fat in the equation, so to speak, that could be cut out to help. And I think that's a good start. Like uh, I know um, City of Vancouver gets a little bit of flack depending on you know which side of the aisle you you're on. But I must say the one thing I liked, at least in uh, in concept, was this idea of taking a very complicated uh, zoning. Uh, structure, you know, a whole lot of different RS zonings, I think nine, 12 different RS zonings and reframing them all into a single uh, zoning description. That is, I don't think people realize how significant those kinds of moves are because um, policymakers, governments tend to only have two weapons, if you like, two tools uh, at their disposal. The one is taxes and the other is legislation, laws. And what tends to happen is they just write new laws because taking laws off the books is is a minefield. It's much easier to just write new ones. But I think Canada, believe it or not, this, t this like very young country that hasn't been around all that long is creaking under the weight of its own legislation layer upon layer upon layer upon layer of different legislation um, that incurs costs and creates complexity for people that are trying to do something like unlock new uh, housing opportunity. Um, and so seeing a city of Vancouver kind of collapse a bunch of legislation, that's amazing. Because back to that point about like, is the inflation 
target of 2%, the right target. If you start with that question, that's super exciting. If you forego that completely, well, then obviously the only thing to do is to use the other tool, which is raise rates in the case of Bank of Canada or levy taxes in the case of you know other governments. But, um, but yeah, I, I really like that move and I hope we see more of that. Reimagine, don't just layer on top another thing. Um, you said gatekeepers earlier, which is an interesting word. Do you mean, um, are you referring to like the, 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 the bulk of like the, the legislation that we're sort of buckling under or a lack of transparency? What do you mean by gatekeepers? Uh, yeah, careful not to get to, into, um, controversy, but I think there are two, I mean, there's obviously this gatekeeper conversation around, uh, the, the role of, of governments, whether that be municipal, uh, provincial or federal layers, but I wouldn't get into that. Like that's, I would like to see less of that or, or a very, uh, self-aware, uh, government at all levels looking at how to simplify, uh, rather than, uh, make more complex the legislative and regulatory environment that we operate in. Um, but the gatekeepers that I'm referring to are specifically in the real estate environment. And they, again, are just taken as status quo and will always be. And, and I guess the two, the two main ones uh, that we encounter is the role of the associations, boards, uh, MLS uh, partners that we have and, and the bureaucracy that, that that actually encompasses. I mean, it, it has an impact on what information we can show to consumers. And, and that for me is like a big pain point. You know, if you, if you want to be the gatekeeper on transparency of real estate information, which I think is, is a, you know, foundational societal need to better understand housing, to better understand prices of housing, the, the volume of transaction of housing. It feels like something that should be a lot more uh, open data in its approach than, than walled garden. So yeah. there's the MLS, uh, bureaucracy and what you can and can't do and 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 the discretion that they have um that impacts the downstream consumer the home seeker massively and no one's aware of that uh, and then the other gatekeeper um and i say this with a lot of respect for what they do which is the the property developer themselves an incredible um protagonist and 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 force for good to bring housing to the market, but they they do and perhaps rightly so view it as their product uh, and are very protective of their product until such time as it comes to market. And, you know, they want to control things like um, absorption rate and uh, uh, price per unit, price per square foot, return. I mean, you, I'm preaching to the choir, you know, all of this stuff uh, better than I do. But the a consequence of treating it as as our product um, is that there isn't a great degree of access or um, awareness generated in the home seeker consumer market ahead of a project launch. And so to understand what the future looks like for a lot of people is very hard. Uh, we're trying to play a much more active role in making that obvious. 
But if you want to encourage market participation, uh, bring home seekers to the table, bring home ownership to a level that it should be in the next generation, uh, you know, this type of level that it is in the current generations, uh, it's going to require like breaking it open, uh, bringing greater degrees of certainty, confidence, and and um, and and all around insight to those people. And I feel sometimes the developers are very resistant to doing that for the reasons that I stated. You know, it's our product, and we're trying to get you know maximum return, and we want to control the process as much as we can. But I would love to see, for example, like master plan. Um, you know, city development plans filled out with every project that's being permitted, the type of properties every project is gonna is gonna bring to the market, the type of pricing every project is gonna uh, come to the market with, the time frames, uh, pre-registration. You know, like if you want to be a, if you want to be involved in the growth and development of that community in the future, just like when Tesla says we're going to bring a car out in 2026, you can. You can buy one, effectively, you can be on the list. I would love to see that in the pre-construction space uh, because I think it would create a representation for this uh, housing demand challenge that we have right now. This, this um, NIMBYism is a consequence in my mind of asymmetric representation. If you already live in the neighborhood, well, you are very represented. If you want to move to the neighborhood, you're not represented at all. And that asymmetry of representation means that projects that should get built don't get built. But if like, if if town councillors knew that this particular project, this one that they're actually on the block right now, has 2,000 people pre-registered for it, there's a whole different symmetry, uh, you know, a whole different balance. Um, the public discourse around that would be totally different. Uh, so anyway, I don't, I don't know what you think about that, but there's an element of breaking that, that market open, which digital platforms are obviously well positioned to do, but it needs the support of the different, um, uh, players in that industry to say, yeah, I totally see it that way. We should definitely visualize exactly what the housing supply picture looks like for Vancouver in 10 years time. Let's do that to the best of our ability and let people participate in that process well. Um, anyway, that's that's what I meant by gatekeepers, yeah. is a protectionism around information and the supply of information. Uh, and I think we're so past that. You know, we, we're in the information age. Uh, the idea of restraining information for certain incentives is very much an old model. Uh, I would rather lean into how do you leverage information and access to build the type of future that you want. Um, anyway. I love it. I agree. And you mentioned a couple of different groups and, you know, different product types, but looking at the, uh, at the groups, you know, you got to look at the, at the realtors and the realtor boards, uh, a board is in the business of, of they're in the realtor business, right? They're, they're trying to make realtors relevant and important and valuable. And, and you're talking about a group of people who not very long ago, um, before it was available on the internet, they had literally a physical book, yeah. which had all the listings in it. And if you wanted to see what was for sale, you needed to know a realtor so that they could look in their secret book mm. and tell you. 
Um, <laughs> that's not very long ago. And that's sort of the, the sort of antiquated mentality of that group. And things have been, you know, they've loosened up obviously a little bit. Um, but culturally, uh, they are as a group trying to figure out how to add value. And I think it's terrifying for them. Um, transparency creates less opportunity for them to add value. And I even feel it uh, from like the key perspective on on the product types. You talked about the pre-sale industry. Mm. It's the worst. It's a closed book, you know, yeah. uh, because it can be. And, and, and we can crack it open. Um, we just have to, and I'm happy to figure it out with you. Mm. You know, it's just a matter of, of finding the right client, the right developer mm. and the right project and the way that they could be talked into it is just convincing them the pros outweigh the cons. Because if you're first to do this, if you're first to be this transparent, um, you know, the, the public is going to love it and they're going to sign up, line up. They're going to be interested. And those are the pros that will outweigh the cons. Oh, and the data that you can get, because you're effectively like um, uh, market testing concepts. Yeah. So, you know, the, the earlier you can be in market testing the idea of your project, the relationship it has with the community, the nature of the amenities, like there's so much data that you can gather through the interaction people have with that information ahead of you building anything or committing anything mm -hmm. from a professional team point of view. Um, so I see a lot of value to that, but, um, and, and I'm pleased to hear that you kind of share, you know, a bit of the, the vision of what that could be like the possibility of that. I think the, like if I had to present the, the the risk that I see right now is that this moment is already upon us right now. Uh, housing supply is part of the zeitgeist. It's creating a lot of pressure on a bunch of different areas, whether that be immigration from the federal side, whether it be uh, municipal zoning and, and um, uh, approval processes at the city level. Uh, or whether it's the developer themselves and the kind of scrutiny that they feel they may be coming under um, as a part of this process, um, it's upon us. Like right now, the crisis, if you like, is here. And the best thing that you can do, in my mind, in a, in a crisis moment like this, is a large, obvious, transparent initiative to break open what this uh, future looks like. Because make no mistake, every one of these developers, at least the ones that I've met, are incredibly well-intentioned. They're specialists in what they do. They deeply understand uh, how to do it uh, in ways that Joe Public has no idea about. But none of that is obvious to Joe Public. And so Joe Public sees them as part of the problem instead of part of the solution. And the only way, I think, to shift that view and that narrative is to show Joe Public what they are actually doing, to change the nature of the city, to add housing supply, to create a more balanced housing environment, uh, to tangle with bureaucracies and regulations where they need to. Um, so how do you make that more visible? Uh, I feel like that's a great opportunity for our industry is to make that whole process more obvious to people. Because in the absence of that, the, the risk is that you get seen as the problem. Yeah, the reason we don't have enough houses is because developers don't build them. And when they do, they're only luxury towers and they take far too much money off the table. And so maybe we should regulate them more. 
that that's horrible direction to go. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I I would love to explore that more with you and see what the possibilities look like. Yeah, let's try and figure it out. I agree. The problem isn't developers. I've said it before. It's boring for people who've heard it before, but there is an opportunity in this market, I think, for a transparent developer that's uh, operating at a at an open book cost plus type pricing mm. environment mm. where a lot of people don't realize that developers actually only make 15 or 20% profit on a mm. project. Uh, they might imagine it's a lot more because the prices seem high. And if they had transparency to the books, mm. imagine buying a presale and it was $600,000 and you knew it was going to be plus or minus 8% depending on, you know, where the dust settled. Um, I think some buyers that would really resonate with them. They would see a lot of value in that. They'd accept oh. 15 or 20% isn't too much. They're, they're more profit was made on the jeans they're wearing than, than the home they're buying. Yeah. And then, and, and what's the alternative? I'm going to buy resale and I'm going to pay commission anyway. Um, and I'm not going to get the benefits of the pre-construction space, which is, you know, the, the guarantee on the property and the, um, uh, the, the, the appreciation that I realize between when I sign and when I actually take, uh, ownership. So those are great benefits that, you know, immediately make it look favorable. Um, but it's not like it's a zero cost to buy resale. It's a it's a real cost in in realtor commissions to buy resale anyway. So that um fifteen percent that you talked about is not yeah, I think everybody would understand that. And certainly when you start seeing the numbers, like like what has been invested in time and in years to bring this type of housing product to the market. People would say, oh, yeah, they're definitely worth the the money that they mm-hmm. earn. But I'm not even suggesting like making that uh, transparent to that degree. Like cost plus is a fascinating idea. And I think some developers will benefit hugely from that, from a perception point of view. But also just access. I think what irritates a lot of people is... Uh, and we see this kind of on our platform because we've got uh, thousands of projects in the pre-construction phase on the platform. People want to engage with them. They register. It's like this lingo for send me more information. But what it actually does is like put them in a CRM and they start getting, you know, drip campaign. The very first email they get has got no more information about the project than they could find online. So it's like, okay, there's no... uh, how do I get access to this? How do I get some sense that, hey, I could join a queue here, I can get more information and insights. I'm being held at arm's length. And you know what that's like. If there's anything that holds you at arm's length, you develop a, uh, yeah, just a resistance and a frustration at it in general. Um, Sometimes also a desire. You know, it's, it's like buying anything rare. You know, whether it's a limited edition pair of sneakers or. Yeah, or, but let uh, me behind the rope. You know, let me behind the rope. It's like, um, you know, have somebody come out and say, yes, you're welcome. Come into the VIP area. Let's have a little bit more of a discussion. Yeah. Now I'm really involved. Yeah. But but keep me outside on the curb. And by the time I come in, I'm either going to be uh, frustrated uh, and you're going to have to calm me down or I'm going to have walked away. And And I think that's what happens a lot. And it's, and because there's such a housing supply issue, the launch still goes well, the absorption rate is still good, the precon is still sold, everybody's everybody's happy, but the sense of loss and the failure rate of the people that never got access is so high 
uh, you just don't know about it. And those people are now frustrated in general at the state of housing supply, at the state of property development industry, at the lack of uh, openness and accessibility that they have to that industry. And that's the issue that I don't think any one developer can solve on their own, but all of them together, or at least like the top 10, they could create a model of how to solve that. Like bring that to life for people, give people a sense of access and connection with the industry and uh, your sales launches will be oversubscribed uh, long before you even have one Uh, and your public support for building new projects will be so much higher. Um, That advocacy thing is I think about, I think about that a lot. Um, I don't think we think enough about it's, it's now part of the conversation. Everyone's talking about housing supply. It'll be something else in a year's time, but advocacy for building the communities where we want, the cities that we want, uh, growing the way we want to grow. Uh, there's, there's not an enough, uh, private participation in that advocacy, advocacy, at least in my mind. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the biggest ag- advocacy group for the industry is UDI. Yes. Do you have any, do you ever talk to them? I haven't spoken to them. I've gone to a few of their um, their engagements, and I do find it fantastic to see the industry that well represented in one place. And the conversations are always fantastic. But I haven't engaged with them specifically on uh, on any of this. I, I, you know, I'm not connected to anybody yeah, on they their do board a, or anything. They do a pretty pretty good job because the industry, I think, culturally isn't. Um isn't very cooperative. You know, mm-hmm. they're mostly family businesses and there's a, there's a feeling or, you know, within a family business that it's us against them, you know, yeah. we're a family, we're looking out for each other and for ourselves. And, uh, it's every, every family for themselves, I guess, to some degree. And I guess that, I mean, I, I love that kind of industry because real estate is that real estate is this, um, uh, highly fragmented, a somewhat democratized opportunity for everybody to play. Um, a pre-construction a little less so because there's this you know capital requirement, expertise requirement. Um, but real estate in general is a wonderful space for every kind of person to uh, play a role. How you organize that though is uh, really interesting. Uh, that's part of the reason I love marketplaces. Because marketplaces bring together this crazy fragmented world in what seems to be an ordered and consistent experience. Um, I think UDI does that in a different format, but they might be a perfect um, group to talk to in terms of like, how do we really bring to life the plans of these uh, thousand people in the room for the residents of the city, Uh, you know, what is what does future Vancouver look like? Is an amazing question that I think UDI, REW, and the the developers in that room are best placed to answer. But what a cool initiative to to think about. Um, funny thing is though, when I talk to developers about this directly, it's like, yeah, but the the product's not ready yet. You know, we'll call you in a in a year, and and that's the challenge. Is like, it's not about is the product ready. Is it about the sales throughput of that particular product? It's about bring to life this vision for a neighborhood that you have connected with the vision for a neighborhood that someone else has and give me a vision for the city. Um, 
I'm really big on like, how do you bring vision to life? Uh, and I think digital platforms just have such a great uh, role to play in doing that. Because you can, I mean, I'm not talking about the metaverse, uh, but you can evidence things long before they are real and generate a belief in people uh, that leads to that eventual outcome. And that's that's cool. You know, you want to be doing that kind of thing. My mind keeps coming back to the the bureaucracy that the developers stumble over in trying to do some of the things you mentioned, like, uh, you know, like let me in pass the rope, come into the VIP room, that kind of thing. You know, a developer is not allowed to uh, advertise uh, homes for sale until they file disclosure technically. So um, a disclosure statement is, is the legal description of what's being offered for sale. It's very complete. This includes a background of the, of the developers and, and a lot of important details of the project, but that's done very late. That's literally the last thing that's completed before sales start. So, so there is no time. There's no opportunity for, um, for a developer to let the public in to get information, any detailed information about the project until, until that time, all that developers allowed to do is, uh, is kind of that annoying experience you described where, you know, thanks for expressing your interest. Um, tell us about yourself maybe and what you're looking for. And we'll, we'll, we'll maybe give you a starting from price for a product type, but we can't give you specific prices or, or even very much detail. Yeah. I mean, that's, uh, that disclosure statement problem. I, I guess you've got these two ends of the spectrum, at least as I understand it, there's, um, the idea of a rezoning application or some type of application with the city to start off the whole planning process and the consultation process. And then there's the disclosure statement and there's this, all the space in between. So I'd love to sit down and say, well, what can you do in the space in between? Um, do you need to change the rules around disclosure statements? Maybe. Um, do you need to kind of operate more within that gray area? Uh, cause that's another thing that, I mean, digital platforms do all the time. We take information, we aggregate it, and then we augment it. You know, uh, is it always 100% correct? No, but it's directional and consumers love getting some steer on what's happening. So that's where, um, I think we can play a really big role is, is in that, uh, middle between, uh, permit application and and disclosure statement like how can we bring it to life in a way that has a high enough fidelity for people to understand what it is you know how they're going to get access to it uh you know whether it's for them how it relates to other types of uh, inventory coming into the market in the future you know just build a picture uh but without transgressing obviously any regulation or if you do you know, ask for forgiveness. <laughs> that works. You know why our, our lawyer loves me? He told me yesterday, it's because we're very interesting uh, <laughs> because we're always pushing into the gray. You know, we never do anything that contravenes the rules, um, but there's a lot of gray and we're all, we're always pushing into it to find opportunity to find innovation, to find ways. I to love that. You can't see. innovate without doing that. Especially you in an industry with so much, questions. Yeah. so much bureaucracy. You have to question like, you know, what you were just talking about, that long period of time that's wasted, you know, after third reading before whatever, um, that is, that time is wasted and it's, it's a shame. So sometimes it is better to ask for forgiveness than permission. 
So maybe we should just do it. We should just add <laughs> Nick's rolling his eyes. I'm not saying that we break the rules, uh, but we find a different way to communicate to the public that there is something coming on this site here. Mm. And this is a way to engage, um, you know, prior to marketing starting, this is a way to engage uh, in a conversation, to express interest, to to express an opinion about what you think ought to uh, be built there, that kind of thing. I love that. So, so the way I would define that is you're not advertising. It's not advertising at all. It's advocacy. It's basically, I want to bring this to light. This is what's happening. I'm going to make sense of this application to you. Uh, I'm going to give you some way to engage, you know, either because you want to be part of this future community, either as an investor or a resident, or because you're an interested party and you just want to stay connected to what's happening here. But that's really an advocacy project. It's not an advertising project. Obviously, the synergy between or the segue between uh, advocacy and advertising is is obvious. Uh, if you've got a large and interested uh, community of people engaged prior to advertising, that's good for any advertiser. It's going to bring down costs of advertising. It's going to be a very uh, positive um, aspect of bringing that project to the market. But it doesn't need to be called advertising because it actually isn't. Um, you know, when you put one of those permit application boards up on a building, is that advertising? You know, um, so I, I, yeah. I mean, I know we've gone very deep into that particular um, side, but I'd love to think differently about how you visualize the future to people because I, more than a lack of housing right now, I feel that people have a lack of vision for what the future of housing looks like at the local neighborhood level, at the city level, and even at the national level. Um, and so getting the vision piece right uh, is a big, big step in my mind to getting the housing piece right. Uh, you know, you often hear like some of these, um, the pushback from, from mayors will be, but you don't know how many units we've already approved that remain unbuilt. Like that's an interesting pushback and I don't know how valid it is, but imagine bringing that to life. Here are all the permit applications already approved. Here's, you know, what's happening with the status of those projects for whatever reason. Um, having no visibility on that again just creates this like this, this uh, sand in the machine. Uh, it's like, man, this housing thing is way tougher and more irritating than it should be. Uh, I don't have any idea how I'm going to get access to it. And that generates these very negative narratives and perceptions that people hold about developers, about uh, cities, uh, about various levels of government. And none of those are positive things when you're trying to build a great society, you know. Um, so, yeah, I think the vision thing is a piece that is easier to work on than the actual underlying problem. Um, and we're probably closer to that than we think. Yeah, we could visualize every product, uh, every every project in the city, the impact of that project on the communities, uh, you know, high level costs, high level square meter or square foot prices, um, and all in an immersive and engaging and insightful and confidence building way. And what did that cost? I don't know, a couple of million bucks. Like it's way easier than trying to build the whole city. Um, but it's going to give people an incredible roadmap for how to move forward, um, including the regulatory gatekeepers 
and the developers. Um, but that's like a UDI type, industry type initiative that I think would be wonderful uh, to 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 spearhead. It's tough. I mean, they're they're uh, they're a nonprofit. They're busy advocating to government on behalf of developers. You know, something like that sounds. I have so much faith in entrepreneurs. Like I, yeah. we keep coming back in this issue to the supply issue and it's not wrong. Like if you flood the market with supply, watch what happens with pricing, watch what a lot of these problems get fixed. That's just so, so simple. Um, and we keep coming back. There's too much bureaucracy. There's not enough supply. There's, it's all supply obsessed. Um, but the truth is we in the industry don't do a good enough job on the demand side. Mm. You know, the whole buyer agent thing is, is very disjointed. There are a bunch of, of cowboys, you know, focused just on their client and the cooperation mm. or communications is zero mm. between them. But imagine if we did a better job on the demand side. Imagine if we talked with, uh, people that were willing to buy a home, mm. interested, you know, you talk to them all the time on your website and, and we found out, um, you know, that, that maybe I can afford, I just filled out your, your mortgage calculator. I can afford a $650,000 home. Mm. I am willing to, uh, I definitely need two bedrooms. Mm. I'm willing to live in Vancouver, Burnaby, whatever, or within 20 kilometers of my work. And here's the address. You know, there's some basic things. I definitely want a gym in the building. Mm. Um, uh, I just don't want to live anywhere more than 10 years old. Mm. Um, I prefer new, um, you know, there's, a, there's some very simple questions that could be asked to, to, to create a, um, a record of a person, uh, you know, with, with really legitimate interest and then to aggregate that with, with, all of the other interests you collect from everybody else. And then now you flip the whole thing. Like we're obsessed with supply. Like even at key where we get, our, we get a project, we maximize the value of it and go find the buyers for it. Mm. Uh, it's all about supply. But if you get it on the demand side, you could flip it to, you know, you could see that we need government, uh, yeah. Mr. Government or Mrs. Government. We need uh, 250 units at this location. You know, we have the buyers for them already. 200 of them need mm -hmm. to be two bedrooms, um, ranging in size from 720 square feet to 800 square feet. We need to have a gym in the building, but we don't so, need much other amenities. How could you, that not You work? now become the advocate for this, uh, this future home seeker market. But there's value created there and yeah. the, therefore profit there. There's value that can be captured by whoever organizes that information. Absolutely. Because that's a much less risky proposition for a developer that could Instead of buying a piece of land and going through a process for years and taking a bunch of risk, they have pre-pre-sold, in a way, that project. That's exactly right. Um, but how to move from just data and insight for the developer to like a legitimate um, path to acquisition for those home seekers, like an experience that they can begin to trust and connect with, that's, that's a big journey, you know, because like we today will have an engagement with the developer and say, well, look, this is what we see on the site. You know, people are very interested in this product type, in this neighborhood, at this price point. We can build some analytics around uh, what would be a, the best composition for your project um, from a product point of view. Uh, but that's a bit of like a data and insight perspective. Moving that down to an actual consumer experience where it's like, Hey, I interacted with this platform. I got like a deep insight into what the future of this uh, Broadway plan is going to look like. I picked a couple of the buildings that I'm super interested in being an investor in. Uh, and I've now put myself uh, on the list 
to be one of the kind of VIPs that access that opportunity a day before anybody else, that's a whole different ballgame. And that's, that's, I mean, I'd love to see it get there, but that really needs um, buy-in from the, 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 I wouldn't call them the gatekeepers, but certainly the product owners, the, that requires the buy-in from developers that that's a cool idea. We want to be part of something like that. Um, and, and unfortunately the challenge is it's, it's not necessarily going to change the metrics too much. It might reduce a little bit of the marketing cost, but the truth is I still think that the marketing cost for projects is not one of the most significant costs. And so, you know, you're nibbling at the margins to really optimize that. Um, in a low supply environment like we have now, are the incentives sufficient uh, to to be part of a broader initiative like that? And I don't think they are because, you, you know, you're going to host the sales launch, you're going to sell out the building. It's, you know, it's going to happen anyway. And I'm certainly not advocating for a way to drive up already high prices. So um, the, the incentive is more about... Um, taking an active role in city building, taking an active role in the conversation around housing supply and being seen as a, as a marquee developer brand uh, to be a force for good as opposed to a, um, I guess, how some of the perception is now, which is, which is um, – Instead of seeing them as a force for good and 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 city building and bringing housing supply to the market, which is all very true, I guess some people tend to see them as a little bit like you know taking money off the table. Um, that that and 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 you and I know that's not true at all. But um, I don't think any developer would describe the perception of the public towards their brand as as highly positive, uh, which is a pity because it should be. Like those brands should be the brands that you celebrate when you when you want your city to develop and grow and rejuvenate old areas into new and you know those are the brands you would look to. Um, so so the incentive needs to be more around brand and uh, a role for advocacy around housing supply and the consumers that are going to buy future housing, um, and that's all that's a bit more intangible, right? So it's not it's not easy to say it's not a perfect fit for a lot of a lot of people. But I agree with your comments about entrepreneurship. You just got to find the model uh, that makes that work. And we're we're one of the companies I think that's working hard on trying to figure out what that mix should be. Um, but there's definitely a demand from from home seekers and people uh, out there to bring this world to life for them uh, in ways that it hasn't been done before. So. I mean, that's part of the reason why we're doing some of the YouTube shows that we're doing and try and explore different mediums. I mean, you've, you've got a podcast, you have conversations with fascinating people. It's a different medium. It's a different way to kind of um, bring ideas to life. Uh, we're, we're looking to do that, uh, branch out from just being, you know, a search and find property website to being a real estate brand that really builds confidence for home seekers. Do you know developers are not allowed to... Um take any money from a potential buyer to get access to like a preferential group to get first opportunity to buy that kind of thing. Um, that's another area of gray that, that kind of needs to be figured out. Um, because it's, uh, I wonder, I wonder if, the, I mean, I love the idea of escrow in that space. Um, 
<clears throat> you know, you needn't have the developer take money, but um, if there somebody was somebody else could, yeah, somebody else could could um, could take that early interest, qualify that interest, create an experience that on ramps uh, future customers, and all of that um, on behalf of developers. I, I love those ideas. I really get excited about that. There's so many. That's what I love about this industry. It's there's there's so much opportunity. You know, it's so big. And, uh, and it's still frankly quite antiquated. There's still, uh, so much opportunity to innovate and, and add value. What do you think of, uh, this, this federal noise around Airbnb? Um, well, I've heard provincial noise around regulating it province-wide. Um, I haven't been paying attention to what the feds are saying about it, but it's very similar, very similar. Yeah. I don't, uh, I don't get it. Honestly, it's just another, um, sort of half measure. It's, it's something that's very public. Uh, I guess the storyline is that that home that's being rented to tourists should be provided to a long-term tenant, a long-term local tenant that desperately needs it. Um, and what do I know about it? I'm not an expert. I, I just am generally uh, against more government regulation and restrictions, generally speaking. Especially on the demand side. It's like another demand measure. Yeah. And they're allowing it for people with a primary residence. I don't know if that means that um, you can only rent out your home when you're not using it, or if your basement suite is allowed to be rented out, or if you could buy a six unit apartment building and live in one of them and rent out the other five. <laughs> That's a good question. I don't know. Uh, but again, it's just another half measure. It's not going to solve anything. Um, I don't get it. It's just politicking. It makes It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Yeah, look, the, the only thing I would say, um, and I don't think it's the intention of this regulation has got anything to do with this, but in some respect, uh, the the Airbnb move, and, and I actually one of the earliest adopters of Airbnb, and I'm a huge fan of their platform. Uh, I've hosted many, many places in different parts of the world, and I love the experience as a host and as a guest. Um, but if there is... Uh, any downside to it, it definitely accelerates this view of real estate as a financial instrument. Um, it's it's like it's a yet another way to kind of profit from and grow wealth from real estate. And so um, I know the the regulation is meant to kind of tamp down on on um, uh, tourism demand for otherwise long-term rental options and try and bring supply back to the market. I don't think it's going to do much of that, but um, it does challenge that preconceived philosophy that people hold about re real estate being first and foremost about wealth creation and second being uh, a social need, uh, the kind of social requirement for adequate housing. And I know it's not that, that same house is is the is the thing that um, is going to be uh, traded between those two extremes that I've just described. But again, it's like a, I know a lot of people that have bought a bunch of properties to effectively become like a pseudo hotel owner, um, and it's a very different use of residential real estate to housing people uh, on a long term basis that live in the community. And it, again, it kind of accelerates that thinking about housing as a financial instrument, not a social asset. Uh, and I love that idea, but I'd love to see that idea of financial instrument layered on top of adequate housing for everyone. 
not instead of adequate housing for everyone. And that's that's kind of like where I don't know. I've got mixed feelings on the whole Airbnb thing. I think we just too often, government too often meddles with supply and demand. I mean, the the free market, the open market system, it just works. You mean, yeah, you mean demand. Because yeah. they don't do a huge heap in the supply space. Well, they don't do anything to help it. But they <laughs> they if they just leave it well enough alone, it'll sort itself out. I can tell I you. I agree with this. If people start hearing that the Airbnbs are a great way to make a ton of money and people start renting out all of the supply comes into the Airbnb market, guess what happens to price? It goes down. I even feel it because we have uh, a basement suite in our home that we rent out that my wife handles as an Airbnb. It was originally a long-term rental when we bought the house. And then uh, she's a naturopathic doctor, decided to practice from home. The, the suite was converted into a, a clinic and it worked great. Um, and then she hung up her, uh, uh, what's it called, a stethoscope. Yeah, she hung that up and uh, and for a year and a half has been renting it out as an Airbnb. It's and awesome. it's, it is, it's fun, sort of, but it's barely worth it, honestly. Like it's the, the incremental value that that she's getting for all of the work that's required it's over. a lot more work than you think yeah 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 so that's the free market system it, it yeah. just works like you know she's she's making maybe sl- very slightly more it's barely worth it at the same time uh the vacancy rate for long-term rentals is very low hmm. um rental prices have gone up so that gap's being narrowed and and then yeah. pretty soon she'll decide this is too much work i'm just gonna rent this out long term totally make basically the same money and uh and again that's the free market system just working itself out we just yeah. need to stay out of it yeah i totally agree with that and i and back to that point about the city of vancouver collapsing some legislation i would love to just see more of that me too because there's a huge opportunity, not just in in like GST on purpose-built rental and that type of thing, but there's a huge opportunity to reduce the government's take on housing supply. It's way too high. I don't think anybody realizes how high it is. Uh, even this idea, it's, it's like the inflation rate thing. Like maybe we should challenge the idea that we share the uh, rezoning uplift uh, with the city. Uh, like... Why? Like that doesn't really make sense. The city doesn't own the land. The, they they just regulate what the land can be used for. So for the city to profit off the rezoning of that uh, to the tune that they do is an interesting dynamic. It's worth challenging. You know, it's certainly not like an administrative fee for the process of consultation and figuring out how the land should be most effectively used. That's I think what the government should be levying not some type of participation with the developer in some kind of upside. You can even uh, argue created. that creates a conflict of interest. Totally. Like what's the motivation of that municipality who's fighting for funds to not constrain supply? Because if it's constrained, totally. then there's big lifts in which they participate. Yeah, totally. It's, and, and those incentive systems are the most important things to get right. Uh, and, and taxes are one of the worst incentive systems because it's, it's like it's the same kind of thing. You see taxes go up at the time that they're trying to spend money um, to increase housing supply. And and the two are at odds with one another. Um, but, yeah, I mean, we're not going to solve the world's problems today. But, uh, <laughs> we're going to try. we got to have you back so you can talk about REW.ca. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're having a lot of fun over there. Uh yeah, we're trying to navigate all of these different challenges. I mean, not a lot of people know, but uh, Canada is one of the very, very few markets anywhere in the world where there aren't a lot of successful property portal companies. 
Uh, you've got Realtor.ca here. They're they're a big force in terms of like being a first mover and and member aligned uh, website. Uh, they do you know a good job of bringing listings to the market, uh, but there are not a lot of others. Like you know, I would say we're the most successful version of a real estate marketplace anywhere else in Canada. But you look at the US, you look at uh, Australia, UK, Western Europe, you've got billion dollar companies in this industry doing very cool things. And I hope that we can scale that way. Um, we're certainly working hard to to do that. But it's evidence of the unusual uh, nature of the Canadian real estate market and all the nooks and crannies that you can easily get stuck in. I had such a good Zillow experience last week. Oh, cool. I was in, uh, I was in America. And I was at a, a mansion party. It's one of my favorite places in the world, old Mallorca. Hey, where? Mallorca. I was in America. Uh, America. <laughs> Scottsdale, to be specific. <laughs> yeah. I wasn't going to be specific, but there it is. I was in Scottsdale at a mansion party. And of course, I'm curious, like, what is this place worth? Because I know a mansion in Scottsdale is not worth what a mansion in Vancouver is worth. And I just opened up Zillow and it didn't even need to put in the address. It just recognized my location. And I could see uh, what it's worth today, um, what it was worth when it sold last February of 2022. Um, and it was so interesting. And I was with a friend who owned a house in Scottsdale. And so I were able to, I could look up his address of his home, see exactly what he paid for it in a, in a nanosecond. And not only that, I could see um, the current value, but I could also see the current amount of his mortgage on the property. Amazing. Yeah. And it seemed so weird because it was a lot. And he's right yeah. in front of me. I'm like, bro, he borrowed a lot of money. It's so weird. <laughs> you're, you're highly leveraged, yeah, man. But he, yeah, on? but he had this feeling of like, yeah, there it is. So whatever, I did it. got a good rate. And uh, uh, I did it at, at a kind of a good time. It was um, the right thing to do. But it, that's the thing with transparency. Once it's out there, it's out there. It's almost relaxing. Totally. And, and I mean, did that make you less likely to work with your realtor next time you buy no. Totally. Yeah. It's like, okay, well, I just know a little bit more. I've got a greater degree of certainty and confidence in what I'm doing, but I'm still going to work with the the guy who gives me the best experience. Yeah. And I don't understand why uh, agents in particular don't see it that way. Like bring this information to life. Let consumers get a much greater idea of of what is going on in the, in the industry and in the ecosystem it's not going to mean that they move away from you. In fact, it's going to mean that they are better equipped to work with you as a partner. And you've seen that. I mean, like in the 20 years since the rise of these platforms in, in the U.S. in particular, uh, more people work with a realtor today than they did 20 years ago, which is fascinating because everyone would look at the rise of, of digital uh, real estate platforms like Zillow or Redfin or, or even what Realtor.com has done, and they'll say, oh, well, that's disintermediating the agent. Absolutely not. It's just creating a companion experience to a highly effective uh, agent and making them able to scale their service. You know, if you're, if you're only responsible for the last mile and a digital platform is responsible for the first mile, you get to work on a lot more deals. And that's, I think, what you're seeing now is specialist realtors are able to do hundreds of sides, hundreds of deals a year. And that is that is phenomenal. Like the level of expertise and professionalism is going up as a result of that. But digital platforms are a big enabler of that. They take all the headache of that early discovery phase off the table. They equip 
home seekers with a far greater degree of insight, understanding and education about what they're about to do. Like you said, it's like it once that information is out there, it's like you feel more relaxed. You're like, oh, I, I, I always should have known that, you know. So we really want to see that happen. But it is so challenging navigating um, the the bureaucracy. And it's a very interesting type of bureaucracy when it comes to real estate data because it's not a it's not an elected bureaucracy. It's elected by the agents within their own associations. But consumers have no say whatsoever in the behavior of, of those associations. And so what happens with the data, where it goes to, who can do what with it, uh, what business models sit alongside that data, those are the challenges that we really, really battle with. So if pre-construction guys are dealing with the city, we're dealing with um, with these uh, you know, member-based uh, bureaucracies. Mm-hmm. Well, I appreciate it, man. I, I want buyers to be more informed and better informed. And I, and I love the work that you're doing with your team because you're taking them on this, this, this really interesting learning journey, uh, making them better informed and then and making an introduction, I think usually to, uh, an agent that can represent their interest at the right time. Yeah. Seems to make perfect sense. Yeah. I mean, it's really no more complicated than that. Yeah. There's a lot that goes into trying to do that well, but, um, but yeah, it's a, it's a very simple mix. We're the meeting place. We we want to increase the confidence that people have in the process. And a lot of people don't do real estate very often. I think you and I think about the vertical all the time, every day. But a lot of people, this is a once in every 10-year process. And they've sort of forgotten and become fearful by the time they next time do it. So, yeah, I think there's a big role for information in that. Yeah, there definitely is. And I appreciate you, man. I've always enjoyed talking to you. I know you're a smart guy, but you're very thoughtful. And uh, I don't know many people more obsessed with this vertical than me, but you might be one of them. <laughs> no, it's a fun, it's a fun vertical. As I said, I, I kind of fell into it by accident, but it's it's fantastic meeting people like you, also deeply passionate about what it could be. Um, so thanks, thanks for having me here. Well, thanks for coming. It was fun. I enjoyed it. Appreciate that, Ken. Yeah.